Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, what, what book of the Bible are we in? John, if you're new, we've been in the book of John for a while. This is week number 43. We're in John chapter 19. After this week, we've just got two weeks left. And today we're gonna look at the most significant person, Jesus, and the most significant event, his resurrection in the history of the world. And I was thinking about how many of you growing up as kids, or maybe you've got kids who played with Legos, or your kids played with Legos. If you're gonna build something that's going to be tall, significant, what's primary is, get that big bottom piece down. Everything locks on it. Without that bottom piece in place, things don't hold together and you can't build tall. Well, the the foundational fact of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. Literally, if Jesus is dead, then everything falls apart and everything crumbles regarding the Christian faith. And you'll hear a lot about Christianity being our faith, which it is, and that is in fact true. But Christianity at its root is about a fact, not just faith, but faith in a fact. It's belief in something that happened actually historically and is recorded. We're gonna get into all of that today. So if you've got a Bible, let's jump into John chapter 19, verse 38. We're gonna establish the fact that Jesus died, John 19 rather, 38 through 42, after these things. So boy, we're looking here at Jesus was born, he grew up, he lived, he did miracles, he preached, he taught. He was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was arrested, he was beaten, tried, flogged, crucified, all culminates right here. A lot has happened up to this point. And at this point in the life and the story of Jesus, he has died on the cross. He has been crucified. He's been publicly executed. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he's one of those guys who says, I love Jesus, but I see the way they treat him. So, you know, Joseph sort of is, you know, off in the shadows. He's off to the side. He's like, yeah. Good luck with that, Jesus. Sorry about what you're going through, but I don't really feel like joining the team publicly, though I do love you privately. This point, once Jesus dies, he sort of comes out of the shadows. He steps into human history and and he's going to serve Jesus following Jesus' death. Um, He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So Jesus is dead. And then the question is, well, who's gonna bury him? Joseph says, I would like that honor. And he asked for it and he gets legal permission need to see that this is a legal transaction that they have crucified him. This is like the death penalty in our country. Once you're dead, then the body is handed over to someone to give it a burial or deal with it. It's a legal transaction. It's papered up. All of this is sort of public common knowledge. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that was in John chapter three. Nicodemus is a religious leader and he had a lot of questions for and about Jesus. So we looked Back in John chapter three, they met late one night because Nicodemus didn't want everybody to know he was hanging out with Jesus. He didn't want to suffer for his relationship. Well, Nicodemus shows back up again. He, he re-enters the picture. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came in a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in weight. This is how they would prepare their body for burial. Different religions, different traditions have different rules for how to prepare the body for burial. And he tells us that the total combined was about 75 pounds. If in addition to this, there were the grave clothes and the linens, 
This could be upwards of 100 pounds. Think of Jesus' body being almost like a mummified state where you know, it's prepared with all the spices and then it's, it's wrapped up. And this is a way to honor the deceased. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Oh, it just so happens there's a brand new tomb here that belongs to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a quiet disciple. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, they're getting ready for the holiday. And since the tomb was close at hand, time is of the essence, they laid Jesus there. So first thing that we need to establish, Jesus died. Look at this like a legal brief or a cumulative case. Jesus died. How do we know that he died? Well, he spent a night in anguish and agony and prayer. He then was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. They took him, arrested him, and they beat him during the course of an entire night. We read as well that then they had him flogged. This is where they're ripping the flesh off of the man's body, deep tissue damage. Many men did not survive the scourging. He then was forced to carry his crossbar to his place of execution. It was perhaps a hundred pounds. The Bible says that as he was carrying it, Jesus fell. Uh, Medical doctors will tell you that this will cause deep contusions to the heart cavity and the chest, that if you don't get medical attention, you're in the process of dying from heart trauma. Uh, Some medical doctors, as I've said before, would indicate this is like you're driving in a car and you don't have an airbag or a seatbelt, you're in a head-on collision and you are thrust headlong, full speed into the steering wheel. It was that same level of trauma to the body. If that weren't enough, then they crucified him, which the whole point was to execute someone through the most sensitive nerve centers, the hands and the feet. And then once he had died and the executioner determined him to be dead, we read that they took a spear, pressed it underneath his rib cage. It punctures his heart sac so that water and blood flow from his side. And then he is wrapped in 75 pounds of burial spices plus the linens. And he is laid in a tomb carved out of rock, which means it is cold and isolated. He gets no medical attention for three days. Let's just state the obvious, can we? In summary, Jesus died, amen? He died. I mean, any one of those things would have killed you and cumulatively you're most certainly dead. And what John is doing here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are biographical testimonies about Jesus. John is the fourth. I believe that he writes last to fill in any historical details that otherwise might've been omitted. And here are some things that we learn here. Number one, Jesus died. Number two, the place of his burial was well known. This was not a secret. This was very overt, not covert. In John's gospel earlier, we looked at the fact that when they arrested him, 600 armed Roman soldiers showed up. I mean, this is not a private event. This is a public event. I don't think 600 soldiers showed up to you know, arrest El Chapo. I mean, you're looking at a massive military endeavor. In addition, it said that there were religious leaders and they had the legal right to arrest him. So all of this was before a judge. This was all tried before Pilate, the political leader. The death and burial of Jesus was a big, massive, well-known public event. And so where he is buried is nothing short of public knowledge. In addition, um, Nicodemus knows where he is buried. 
Nicodemus, um, as we looked at, he was the religious leader that came to see Jesus one night. So we'll call him Nick at night. So Nick at night shows up. And Nick at night after he's dead, he knows exactly where Jesus is buried because he prepares the body for burial and puts it in the tomb. And he is a well-known public religious leader. In addition, the tomb is belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, who is probably a prominent man. And this is real estate. If you own your home or a plot of land, you've got a deed with it, it's legally registered, it's your property. This was a nice tomb in a wealthy affluent garden that he had purchased for his own burial. And Joseph of Arimathea, he's alive, he knows exactly where it's at. And the government knows where it's at, it's historically registered. In addition, they put a Roman soldier before the tomb to guard it and the Roman seal was on it. So this is all legal, this is all papered up, this is all professional, this is all public knowledge. And you're gonna see in a moment, um, men and women come to visit this place. So number one, Jesus died. Number two, everybody knew, and if they wanted to know, it was very easy to find out where he was buried. This is all public knowledge. Number three, nobody, goes to that tomb. He died, he was buried, and we don't know where it is because people stopped visiting there. When a famous person dies, especially if it is public, we tend to enshrine or venerate their place of burial. Candles, cards, prayers, flowers, visits. Where's Elvis buried? Graceland, Graceland. Do we know where Princess Diana's buried? We do, people go there. Do we know where Bruce Lee is buried? We do. Do we know where Jim Morrison of the Doors is buried? We do, we do. When somebody dies and they're buried, we know where they're buried, especially if they were very famous or infamous. This is why even when a bad person dies, we dispose of the body. So Osama bin Laden, when he got killed, they dumped his body into the ocean so that no one could find it because they knew if anyone knows where he's at, they're gonna make pilgrimages there. They're gonna make pledges there. And as a result, we don't want that place to exist. Everybody knew where Jesus was buried. We went there some years ago to Israel as a family, and there's all these different destinations you have to pay to get into. Let me just tell you this. If they knew where Jesus was buried, it would be profitable, amen? and they would be selling tickets. So we asked you know, some of the archeologists and tour guides, hey, where's Jesus buried? They're like, yeah, I know you flew a long way. And that's kind of like the big thing. We just don't, we don't know. We don't know where he was buried. We wish we knew, because we'd get 20 bucks a head. That'd be awesome. So they take us, you know, we got to pay some money to go into this place. And they're like, see that hole in the, in the, in the, in the hillside? Yes, they said it was like that. Hey, I want my 20 bucks back. I've seen a hole in a hill. I can get that for free anywhere. This is not, they're like, you wanna go in? I'm like, ooh, hole in a hill, 20 bucks. Yeah, thank you very much. And I asked the guy, I was like, so where, where do you think Jesus was buried? He's like, we have no idea. Everybody wishes they knew, we don't know. I'll tell you why they don't know. He wasn't there, it didn't matter, right? If he dies and then he's at Denny's, nobody's gonna go there. They're gonna like, I'm gonna go see him at Denny's. Cause Jesus got up and he had breakfast, not at Denny's, but he had fish. 
You're like, you're like, I was gonna go cry. And then I heard he's a dentist. He's like, I'm gonna go get a slam and say hi. So he's alive. So there's no need to go to where he was buried. Amen. I'm tired. I just got back from El Paso. I could say almost anything. Give me grace. We're in the new covenant. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 so he's not there. Now, let me tell you why this is significant and why this is important. Um, there are four major world religions that are founded by a person, not just an ideology. All but one, we know exactly where the founder is buried. It's a holy site that's enshrined that people visit. Um, I'll give you the three and then Jesus. So those who are Jewish will trace their heritage back to Abraham. He is buried in Hebron. It's a holy site. It's a place that people go for pilgrimage. Uh, Buddhism, founded by the Buddha, he's buried in India. There's a huge shrine to him. People make that trip every single day. Muslims trace their history back to Muhammad. He's buried in Medina. And again, it's a holy site and people travel from all over the world. Of the major religions, there's only one founder who does not have an enshrined tomb because he walked away from it. His name is Jesus. Amen. That means him significantly different and superior to everyone else. Now, on this point, uh, there is a historian, his name is uh, Edwin Yamauchi. I believe he's still a professor at the University of Miami. He's an expert in his field. Some of the articles that I read said that he has delved into 22 ancient languages to read all of the original source material. And here is his summary. Uh, he says that at the time of Jesus in that region, at least 50 religious leaders who had died were known to have had enshrined tombs. So in that day, 50 different religious leaders die and each one of them is well known and their followers go to that place and the tombs are enshrined and there's flowers and there's cards and there's candles and all the stuff that happens in our day when someone that's beloved dies. And there is James Dunn, he is a, He's a theologian and historian. He says, there is no evidence of any sort or kind that there was any enshrinement of Jesus' tomb. So Jesus died, Jesus was buried. People knew exactly where he was buried and we don't know where he was buried because it doesn't matter because he's not there. This is the foundational fact of our Christian faith. And all of this is in fulfillment of scripture. If you're new, this is the word of God. It's the only perfect thing on the earth. It's the book that God wrote through people. And when it was written, 25% of this book was prophetic, preparing God's people for the future that God had planned. And much of the prophecy in this book is all about Jesus. And so over and over and over, God tells us well in advance, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. And then Jesus shows up and it all happens. I'll give you one example here from Isaiah. He writes 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah 53 verses eight and nine. Just as a caveat, if you wanna just have your heart and mind and soul explode, uh, go home today and read Isaiah from the middle of chapter 52 through the end of Isaiah chapter 53. It's gonna tell you in unbelievable detail about the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus 700 years in advance. But this is one portion of that text. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was oppressed, Jesus was judged, Jesus was taken away. 
The whole of Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 here is about Jesus as our suffering servant. And here it's speaking about him. He was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? He's gonna die. Stricken for the transgression of my people, that he would die in your place for your sin, in my place for my sin. And now look at this line. They made his grave with uh, wicked. He was crucified between two thieves and with a rich man in his death. Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says, when Jesus dies, a rich guy is gonna give him a tomb. Some people say, you know what? Jesus knew the scriptures, carefully architected his life to seemingly fulfill the prophecies. Let me tell you this. The Bible prophesied that his mom would be a virgin. And the Bible prophesied that after he died, a rich man would give him a tomb. Let me tell you this, the things you can't control are the things before and after your life. Amen? I mean, we, we wish we could control those things. That would be amazing, but we don't. Jesus' life fulfills prophecy that is completely outside of his ability to control. With a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, those are his works, and there was no deceit in his mouth, those are his deeds. It says in words and in works, he was sinless. He would die for our sin and he would be buried with the rich in his death. Question, was Jesus rich? Not on the earth, he was in heaven. But once he came down to the earth, he was poor for our sake. The Bible says he who was rich became poor. He had a ministry and it generated a bit of revenue, but Judas Iscariot was stealing from him. When Jesus died, he didn't own a tomb. He was not a wealthy man. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man and gifted to Jesus his tomb that he just so happened to buy, that just so happened to be nearby. See, God is in the details, particularly in regards to Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus was buried. No one knows where Jesus is buried. All of this was to fulfill prophecy that the God who knows and rules the future revealed it to us and it's all about Jesus. Now we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20, verses one through 10. Now on the first day of the week, what day is that? It's a Sunday. They worshiped on Saturday. Jesus rose on a Sunday. That's why Christian churches meet on Sundays. That's the day of Jesus' resurrection. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. The first person to go pay her respects, pay their respects was a woman. This is honoring of this woman, it's honoring of all women. And she's going to, you know, grieve or mourn. How many of you have got somebody you love and they've died? And maybe those first days after the funeral, you're in the grieving, mourning process. You go to the graveside, you shed your tears, you pray, you're having the heart funeral, you're working it out. I can still remember the first person that I lost as a little boy that I remember deeply loving was my grandpa George who died when I was 10. And I could still remember as a little boy riding my bike, it wasn't far from our home, to go to his graveside. Just to, to remember this person that I loved and missed. That's Mary. She goes early in the morning. She's a devoted follower of Jesus. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Just imagine this disorientation. This would be like me as a little boy showing up at Grandpa George's you know, burial plot and there's a big hole and the casket's gone and what is happening? 
right? The, the stone is rolled away and what, what has happened? What has happened? So she ran and went to Simon Peter, leader of the disciples and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who's that? It's John who writes this. You need to know that Jesus loves you like he loved John. You need to know that. That Jesus loves you like he loved John. They had a loving relationship. Jesus wants a loving relationship with you like he had with John. And he said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She, she doesn't fully understand the resurrection yet. She's saying the body's gone, they took him. We don't know what happened, we gotta figure this out. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, why is Peter last? Because he's older. Okay? How many of you are older? You're not fat. Let me just tell you this. If you're young and you get older, you don't get faster. I'll just prophesy that over you. Um, and that's no judgment. John is young, Peter's old, they're both running but eventually John is winning and Peter is losing. And as you get older, your energy level and your speed diminish. I dropped something yesterday and I didn't pick it up because it felt like that was just too much. Uh, <laughs> not even kidding. I was in Texas, I dropped something. I'm like, you gonna get that? I was like, I don't know, that's a long ways down. I gotta get all the way back up. I don't think I have the energy for that. My 20s, I might've picked it up. Just, I'm just saying, no judgment, right? We identify with Peter. And stooping to look in, this had to be one of those, I mean, it's still a little dark out, it's early in the morning. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John gets there first and he's like, what is going on? Peter shows up, what do you think Peter's gonna do? He's just gonna go. Here's what we love about Peter. He's gonna say it whether or not it needs to be said, and he's gonna do it whether or not it should be done. That's Peter, okay? He has no reverse gear. It's just always forward for Pastor Peter. Then Simon Peter came following him, went in the tomb. He's like, oh, let's go in. Goes in to investigate. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus head, not lying with the linen cloths, but what? See, this is another miracle. A man folded something, okay? <laughs> Jesus is doing miracles right from the resurrection. Right, right? Here's Jesus' miracle. He folds it. Let me tell you men this. Be like Jesus and fold stuff, okay? That's, you know, your wife, your wife is, this is the big takeaway. She's like, I wasn't sure about that church. But that folding thing, I think he's really onto something there. Jesus gets up, he makes his bed. I'm not resurrected yet, this ain't gonna happen. Um, but I look forward to it in the kingdom. Uh, uh, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in, he saw and he believed. So John's the first to believe. He's the first one to say, okay, now I remember everything he said, that he's gonna die and rise, destroy this temple, or rise it again in three days, as Jonah was in the belly of the earth, three days, three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth, right? I mean, it's, he's remembering, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. He must, he must have risen. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, looking at this um, as a case study and a cumulative legal brief, let me just point some things out here that are significant. Number one, you just read this. First person at the empty tomb was a woman, which 
In that culture, women weren't given the same legal standing and same legal capability of testifying in court to a matter or an issue. If this were a fabrication and not a fact, they would not have said that the first witness was a woman because that would not have been the strongest legal testimony. Ergo, therefore, it proves that it's a fact and true. Because if you're going to create something that is a false narrative, you're going to do so in the strongest way. This woman loved the Lord, she was devoted to the Lord, she was first to the tomb and she honors the Lord and the Lord honors her and it's just a fact it's not a fabrication. Number two, um, the men were also eyewitnesses and we need to look at their character. John, Peter, these are good men. These are godly men. These are devout men. These are men who have given up their careers to serve with Jesus. They have spent years feeding the poor and caring for the needy and loving and serving. These are men of high integrity and high character. In addition, um, if they're going to worship Jesus as God, these are devoutly religious Jewish men. You don't just pick a new God or make some changes to your religion unless there is significant reason like the resurrection. Uh, number three, um, the stone was removed. And this was a legal matter. I mean, the Roman government executed Jesus. The Roman government released the body of Jesus. The Roman government knew where the body was laid. They put the seal of the Roman government over the entrance, meaning this is now property of the government. And they put a soldier on guard to defend it. This would almost be like there's a crime scene and you show up and the police have got it all cordoned off. And then there's an armed police officer. You're like, this is no longer public. This is now a private state matter and they have taken jurisdiction over this area. That's exactly what's happening. So it's a big deal for the, the soldier to be gone, for the, the stone to be rolled away, for all of this to occur. In addition, the grave clothes, as we just looked at number four, the grave clothes were not stolen. The grave clothes were valuable. If it was a grave robber who broke in let me just ask you this. If you break into somebody's tomb and there is a dead body and their possessions, which one are you gonna take? I'm taking the possessions, not, you know, because that's a value. They leave what is of value. That means that there was not someone who broke in, there was someone who broke out. We, we looked at it previously when they crucified Jesus, they cast lots, rolled the dice for his cloak, for his tunic because that was valuable. Well, here it's left. That indicates that no one broke in, that Jesus broke out. And all of this again is to fulfill scripture. And anytime I have an opportunity, I want to encourage you to trust God's word, encourage you to read God's word, encourage you to study God's word, encourage you to memorize God's word. But all of this again was prophesied and foreshadowed in advance by God, telling them, here's exactly what Jesus is gonna do when he comes. I'll show you just two examples. One is given a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the grave, or let your who? The Holy One. How many are holy? Just one. Just one. All of us are unholy. God has one who is holy. His name is Jesus. He's the holy one. 
You will not let your Holy One see corruption. So the Holy One's gonna come, he's gonna be put in the grave, but he's gonna get out of the grave. God, a thousand years in advance, told us exactly who Jesus was and what Jesus would do. Again, back to Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. He was crushed. He has put him to grief. Jesus shed tears and wept over his suffering. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he himself is not a sinner, but he will die for our sin. He will suffer for your sin, for my sin. He shall see his offspring and prolong his days. He's gonna die and his days will come to an end and then he's gonna get more days. That's the resurrection. This is life after death. Prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The goal is to save sinners and reconcile our relationship with God that sin separates us from God and sin brings death. So God comes to be near us and dies to conquer death. That's exactly, exactly what Jesus is doing. He's forgiving sin and he's defeating death. He's defeating death. Out of the anguish of his soul, after he suffers and dies, he shall see and be satisfied. He'll be back. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, same thing. There's just one who's righteous. There's one who's holy. His name is Jesus. My servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Here's what he's saying. I'm gonna send my righteous one. He's going to come to serve people. He is going to die for them and he will suffer and then he will conquer death. He will have life after his life ends. And because of him, you and I can be counted among the righteous ones. You don't need to make yourself good. You believe in Jesus and he gives you his righteousness. That's amazing. He takes your sin, he gives his righteousness, he goes to the cross and to the grave, and then he comes to take you into his presence forever. This is amazing. This is God's loving plan for his people. Now, this is the most significant event. This is the most staggering claim in the history of the world. What happens then is there are those who will posit alternatives to the resurrection of Jesus. Again, we have looked, the record of the scripture is clear. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose from death. What I want to do in the time that we have together, I want to look at the alternative theories. I want you to consider what the options might be for two reasons. Number one, some of you don't believe in Jesus and his resurrection. I want you to come to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. Number two, some of you do believe in Jesus' resurrection, but you don't have full confidence. Or you may be wondering if someone asks you a question or raises an objection, will you have a reasonable response? And I want to help you to grow in your confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and your clarity in defending it. So these are the six alternatives that have been posited. Number one is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die. He passed out and then he woke up later. Anybody else think that's crazy? Let's just revisit the facts. Um, beaten all night, flogged, uh, crucified, uh, spear through the heart, um, 
wrapped up and put in a tomb with no food, water, or medical attention. We're then to believe he woke up. Oh, and he got out of his burial clothes. And then he was strong enough to move the stone and then walk into town and tell everybody, hey, look, I'm doing great, I defeated death. If you believe that, your faith is amazing, okay? <laughs> your faith is amazing. Now, it's in the wrong thing, but boy, you, congratulations, you have a lot of faith, right? Jesus didn't just pass out, he died, amen? Swoon theory is not good. Am I waking you guys up? Is it just me? The nine o'clock usually is just a nap. It just is. Usually it's like a librarians for Christ meeting. I always say <laughs> at the 9 a.m., it's like if the dead in Christ shall rise first, that's the nine. Now today the nine was awake. I don't know what happened to you guys. Feel free to say something, participate, breathe, you know. Help a brother out, all right? So, okay. <laughs> Number two, um, some will say that Jesus had a stunt double. Okay? You're like, really? That's crazy. Okay so, okay, so Jesus had a stunt double. And the point is that they switched spots before the cross and that the stunt double died. And then Jesus showed up and the stunt double took the punishment and that Jesus was faking it. Okay, let's just consider this. Um, number one, we have no record of a stunt double. So that's it, right, you know. Number two, who was present at the cross of Jesus? We looked at it last week, if you were here. His best friend, John. Your best friend knows if it's you. Who else was there? His mom. You know who knows who you are? Your mom. You can fool a lot of people, not your mom, right? How many of you, your whole life has been spent trying to fool your mom and you can't? <laughs> One guy raised his hand. I appreciate the testimony, brother. So it's honest, it's honest, I appreciate that. So you can't fool your mom. Your mom is there, you're getting crucified. She knows it's you. She knows it's you, everybody knows it's you. Furthermore, after Jesus rises from death, he hangs out with his friends and he bears the marks of crucifixion. Right? There's, there's one of his disciples, a guy named Thomas. He's like, I heard maybe Jesus is alive, but I won't believe it till I see it. And then we'll knock on the door. Row, row. You know, here's Jesus. And he's like, Thomas is like, ah. Jesus is like, hey, take a look. And while you're at it, this is where they stuck the spear in. What is Thomas is the doubter. Some of you are more skeptical by nature. He falls down and he worships. And he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't have a stunt double, it was really him. His friends, his family all knew, and he bore the marks of crucifixion. That's a crazy hypothesis. Number three, the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, their first alternative theory, do you remember what it was? Somebody stole the body. Somebody stole the body. Well, they didn't, but let's just say they did. Okay, let me just, let me just okay, they didn't steal the body, but if you're a religious leader, you're like, they stole the body, but okay, okay, okay. So they murdered Jesus and stole the body. Yes, they stole. Okay, okay, okay. My question still is, how did the body come back to life? Whether it was stolen or not, here it is. So, you know, this doesn't really answer the big question that I have, amen? The dead guy's alive. Well, they took the dead guy's body. Well, now he's having breakfast and walking around preaching sermons. So whatever happened, I'm wondering, 
how he got back. That's what I'm wondering, amen? Is it just, you, really, you, I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, amen, okay, great. All right, great, okay, great, all right, all right. Furthermore, um, it's been a long week for me. Um, and I love you and I'm glad to be here. And you know, Jesus is alive, yay, let's be alive. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> but if the body was stolen, in addition, who was on guard to protect the tomb? It was the Roman soldier. How did they come and break the Roman seal, overtake the Roman soldier? What they did was a crime. Why was this never reported, right? If you break in, let's say you, you, know, you shoot a police officer and rob something, something happens to you, right? If they take down the soldier and they rob the grave that's under the oversight of the government, that didn't happen, there's no record. Now, what some people will say is, there's no evidence outside of the Bible. This is argument number four. Argument number four is, well, this is in the Bible, but you can't trust the Bible. You know, can't trust the Bible. You know, a book that stood for 2000 years and has prophecy and outlives all of its critics. Can't trust a book like that. Um, therefore, it must not be true. Well, wh whether, whether or not there's any evidence outside of the scriptures, we're still dealing with a historical record and account. One of the nice things about the Bible is that eventually archeology span catches up and justifies what the Bible reports. When it says that someone lived here or this king lived there or this thing happened, archeologists go dig it up and eventually they're like, lo and behold, it is a historically accurate book. First, let me say that there is circumstantial evidence outside of the Bible for the resurrection of Jesus. Cause, effect, cause, effect. And I would say for the critics of the Bible, the burden of proof is on you. If Jesus is dead, you give me some reason for these things to occur. Uh, number one, the disciples went from fearful to fearless. We saw Peter, right? I mean, he denied Jesus. Once, once, once the, the cops show up and harm can come, Peter's out. And then they go from fearful of death to fearless in the face of death. Later, they come to Peter and they say, we're gonna crucify. He's like, that's fine, crucify me upside down. What? Your biggest fear was death and now you are fearless in the face of death. It's because they saw that Jesus conquered death. And so they weren't scared of death anymore. The Bible says to live as Christ, to die is gain. They're like, we're gonna kill you. Please send me to Jesus. I would love the upgrade. Their heart changed. Number two, circumstantially, um, Christians started worshiping on Sunday. The first believers were Jewish. God had established a seven day week and Saturday was the sacred Sabbath holy day. And let me just tell you this, Jews to this day, they take the Sabbath super seriously. We were in Israel as a family, sun goes down on Friday, music stops, everything shuts down, it's over. They have two elevators. They have the elevator for the Jewish people and it automatically stops on every floor because they're not allowed to push a button because pushing a button would transmit electricity which could count as work on the Sabbath. I'm a Gentile, we got our own elevator. We don't have to stop on every floor because I could push my own button. This is awesome. Hey, Jesus is alive, push your own button, right? And so look at all the perks, look at all the perks. So I get in the elevator, we're way off the notes now. I get in the elevator 
And next thing I know, there's all these Jewish people in the elevator. Like, could you push three? Could you push seven? Could you push nine? Oh, us dirty kindling Gentiles to do all your button pushing. Apparently it's a sin for me, but if you ask me to do it, it's not a sin for you. They still take the Sabbath super seriously. Can you imagine what it would take to get those people to say, oh, we're changing it to Sunday. These are devout religious people. They stop worshiping on Saturday. They start worshiping on Sunday. Do you know what it takes to change the calendar? A resurrection. We actually measure the calendar to this day by Jesus. Before Christ, BC, AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Our weekly calendar and our accounting of time is around Jesus. My question is, if he's dead, how did all that happen? Two other dudes die with Jesus on the same day. They don't get religions, they don't get a Christmas, they don't get an Easter, nobody accepts them into their heart, right? Bands aren't going on tour to sing songs about them. How do you explain all of this? Amen? Okay, it's, and, and, and so Christianity is this global explosion. Today there's a few billion people on planet earth who worship Jesus as God. And if he's dead, I, I don't know what we're all so fired up about. And then we start celebrating communion, remembering his broken body and shed blood. People start getting baptized, showing his resurrection, cause, effect. How in the world do you explain Christianity if Jesus is dead? Right? I mean, there's a lot of guys who died today and in 2000 years, we're not gonna buy buildings so that we can get together and talk about them. I mean, how do you explain this? So circumstantial evidence does matter. And the burden of proof I would say for the critics is, well, if Jesus is dead, you tell me how this happened. You tell me how this happened. There is, however, historical evidence outside of the Bible. It comes from an ancient historian named Josephus. Josephus was commissioned because Christianity was growing. People were worshiping Jesus and there's this little buzz. Yeah, there's this kind of new quasi-Jewish religious group that worships this guy, Jesus. They're meeting early on Sunday morning, which for them was their Monday. How many of you, if I said, hey guys, we gotta have church at 6 a.m. on Monday, you'd be like, good luck with that, right? <laughs> See, Sunday was for them a work day. So they had to not worship on their day off. They had to start worshiping before they went to work on their Monday. So all of a sudden people are like, what's going on with that group? So they send out a historian, go, go investigate. They hire a professional, go, go examine this and bring us back the report. Who are these people and what are they about and how did they get started and what do they believe? So Josephus writing not long after the resurrection of Jesus, here's his report. There lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Here's his report. For he was one who wrought surprising feats. He did miracles and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many of the Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ, the anointed one of God. Goes on to say when Pilate, we looked at it in John, right? Pilate was the ruling governmental leader who executed Jesus. All of this is historically accurate. The historian's doing a perfectly good job. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused of men of the highest standing amongst us, says he's God, had condemned him to be crucified. 
That's exactly what happened. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. I'll read the rest in a moment. Let me just pause and summarize. So there was this guy named Jesus and he did miracles and he taught and people really loved him. And then he got in trouble for saying he was God. And then the political leader Pilate had him arrested and then he was crucified and he died in a horrific, painful, public, shameful way. And nobody changed their mind. They all kept loving him. Here's why. On the third day, he appeared to them, restored to life. Cause effect. There's this group called Christians because this guy named Christ. And he's alive and they're really excited about that. And we still are, amen? He's awesome, right? That's why we're here. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and other countless marvelous things about him. He's like, well, and then they took me through the Old Testament. They showed me all the prophecies and how he fulfilled them all. This is the historian. And the tribe of Christians so-called after him has still not disappeared. That's the historian, the Jewish historian, Josephus, who by all accounts is not a believer. Now, of course, that text is debated because it's awesome. And anything, something is awesome, somebody doesn't like it. It's awesome, okay? He's just giving us the non-Christian historical record that fully agrees with the biblical account. So swoon theory, number one, stunt double, number two, body stolen, number three, not verified outside of the Bible, number four. Number five, Jesus raised spiritually, not physically. Some very liberal, quasi sort of kind of Christians will say this. Some cults that shot off from Christianity will say, say, he didn't raise physically, he raised spiritually. Jesus is alive in our hearts. Did he physically raise? Yes. yes. We just saw he took his grave clothes off. He walked into town. He had breakfast with his disciples. People hugged him. He shows Thomas his scars. 1 Corinthians 15 says that for 40 days, he hung out preaching, teaching, crowds upwards of 500 people at a time. Come give him a hug, give him a high five, see the scar. He's physically alive. There's another crazy one, I'll just give it, and it's the hallucination theory. Have you ever seen 500 people hallucinate the same thing at the same time? Even if you were here in the 60s doing nefarious things, doing nefarious things with plants that God did not intend for you to do that with, your hallucination is a private matter, right? Because even if you're higher than Sputnik, you're like, do you see the rainbow with the unicorn? They're like, I do not, that's all you. That's a private hallucination. <laughs> Number six, I don't know. <laughs> Some of you may have heard this, uh, that, that is that Christians stole this idea from pagans. The whole concept, it's stolen. Well, it's not, but even if it was, how's the dead guy alive? I'm still going back to my first question, right? Somebody said it first, well, the dead guy's alive. Back to my question, how did that happen? That's awesome, and how do we do that, right? Because every one of us is trying to live. We're buckling up, we're eating vitamins, we're drinking bottled water and we're dying filled with vitamins and bottled water. Like how do, we, how do we live? How do we defeat death, amen? 
If you knew how to live forever, let me just tell you, you could sell some of that. That's a big deal. People sign up for that. So, so the question is, well, if he was dead and he's alive, I, I, how in the world, some would say, well, you stole this idea from the pagans. Let me just say, in the days of Jesus, there were, particularly in the New Testament, there were three different groups. There were the Jews, there were the Romans, and then there were some crazy religious folks with their weird mythology. Let me unpack all three. First, the Jews did not have a concept of one individual person rising in the middle of history. All they had was a collective thought of all of God's people rising together at the end of history. So what Jesus did, the Jewish leaders and the Bible students, they hadn't even thought of. Daniel 12, two comes to mind. Multitudes that sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. Everybody gets up at the same time. Some go to heaven, some go to hell. It's a one and done. Jesus rises in the middle of history individually, not at the end of history collectively. So Jesus does something that the religious leaders and the Jewish scholars and the Bible you know, investigators, they would have said, we never even thought of that. We didn't even cover that in class. Nobody ever even had a conception of that. How about the, the Romans? Did the Romans have a concept or did their mythology have a concept or did their philosophy have a concept of the bodily resurrection of a dead person? No, here's why. For them, that's exactly what they didn't want. For the Romans, they would have been under Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epimenides, Alexander the Great. That's their philosophical heritage. We still look at them in college philosophy classes. And the essence of Greek philosophy was that you are two parts, a physical body, which is bad and undesirable, and a spiritual soul, which is good and desirable. And so they would have seen our body the same way that a, a criminal sees a jail cell. I wanna get out. So the whole goal was to get the soul out of the body so that it could be liberated and freed from the death sentence to the body. So not only did they not believe in a physical resurrection, they didn't wanna believe in a physical resurrection. For them, that was worst case scenario. There is a scholar named N.T. Wright. He's written about an 800 page book on the resurrection of Jesus. He studied at Oxford. He uh, lectures at Aberdeen. If you're a nerd, it's an awesome book. But what he basically does, he goes back to all of the original Greek sources, ancient philosophers, all of their cultural narratives and storylines. And he says, there is no concept of a physical resurrection. Furthermore, there was no desire for the possibility of a physical resurrection. So we didn't steal it from them. And then some will come along and they will say, well, no, no, there were these obscure religions, these spiritualities, these mythologies, Christians stole it from that. Historian Edwin Yamauchi, as I said, he has worked in 22 ancient languages. He teaches at the University of Miami. He is well awarded as a historian. So he goes back to all of the ancient mythology and spirituality, and here's what he concludes. Their concept of a resurrection comes after Jesus, they stole it from the Bible. Drop mic, thank you, Jesus. Get rock, paper, scissors, Jesus, amen? That's amazing. We couldn't have stole it from the Jewish people. They had no concept. We couldn't have stole it from the Romans. They had no concept and didn't want it. And we didn't steal it from the pagans. The pagans stole it from us after Jesus rose from there. They're like, that's amazing. Let's work that in. Why do I tell you all this? 
The most significant person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. The most significant event in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're gonna die. And when you die, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to belong to Jesus. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to trust in Jesus. Because I tell you what's gonna happen, you're gonna stand before Jesus. And so the most important day of your life is the last day and the most important decision you make is what you think about him. And I want to show you that not only did Jesus rise from death, he left such strong, incontrovertible, absolutely compelling evidence. Furthermore, anyone who would posit anything differently, what they are proposing is so weak. It's so insignificant. It's so insufficient. It's so non-compelling that Jesus in his resurrection with all of the historical, factual, and actual evidence just towers above all of human history, which is why we love Jesus, why we trust in Jesus, why we're excited about Jesus. And when we die, we're gonna be like Jesus. Let me close, maybe. (sighs) Can't lie in church. Um, And some of you are like, this is a long sermon. If that means you're new, okay? If you've been here a while, you're like, that was the introduction, you know. If you're a diabetic, pack a snack, you know, it's gonna be a while. Jesus' resurrection was during a Jewish feast called First Fruits. All of this is under God's providence and His timing. First Fruits is where you give the first and you give the best because God is worthy of our first and God is worthy of our best. Furthermore, it's an act of faith. If I give to God first, I am trusting that he will bring the rest. If you wait till God gives you everything and then you give a percentage, there's no faith in that. If you give first and you trust him for the rest, that's faith. So we give our best and we give our first to God. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, verses 20 through 23, through 23 says that Jesus Christ is our first fruits. Jesus' resurrection on the day of first fruits is our first fruits. Let me explain to you what this means. Um, I'm gonna call the ushers forward at this time. We'll collect our tithes and offerings. And I, I, I wanna just take a minute, just bear with me. I'm gonna struggle with human language to explain the inexplainable, to articulate something that God promises that that we've never seen and doesn't yet exist, okay? So as we collect tithes and offerings and you give your first fruits, let me explain first fruits. Not only does the Bible have promises, prophecies, and predictions, about Jesus' first coming, it has some more yet to be fulfilled about his second coming. Now, let me say this, Jesus died and he rose in a glorified, perfected body. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you will die. And upon his second coming, he is going to call your name. Right, he did this with a friend of his, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of his grave. There's a day when the Lord Jesus is coming back to the earth. He knows every longing of your heart. He knows every day of your life. He knows your name. And he is going to call your name and you're going to come out of your grave. 
Let, let me just explain this. First John 3, 2 and 3, John writes this, the same man who wrote this gospel, beloved. Let me just say that. Not only does Jesus love John, Jesus loves you. And through John calls you his beloved. Okay? You are loved. You are loved. You are loved by God. You are loved. God starts with love for you. What, what's amazing to me, this term beloved, I think of my kids, amen? amen? So if you ask me, who's my kids? Well, that's my family. Those are my kids. Here's what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. You are God's kids. God loves you with a father's affection. God loves you with a father's devotion. You're his kids now. You're struggling now. You're hurting now. You're, you're, you're physically injured or ill now. You're struggling financially now. You're discouraged now. You're having a hard time now. But let me just tell you, you're the children of God now. And I don't want you to live in light of the past or the present, but to live in light of the hope of the future. He goes on to say, and what we will be. God has a destiny for you. God has a plan for you. God has an eternal state for you. What we will be has not yet appeared. It doesn't exist yet. The, the person that you will be, no person is like that yet. Who you will be when God is done with you is something that you've never seen and you can't even conceive of. Jesus is the first fruits and you're going to follow him and you're going to be like him. But we know this is confidence. This is faith in a fact. This is trust until we see that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Not only is Jesus alive, he's ruling and reigning. There is a day when he'll be returning and coming. His feet will again stand upon the earth and you, my friend, will hear his voice. And he, as he got out of his grave, you will get out of your grave and you're gonna see Jesus. You're gonna see Jesus with crucifixion scars, reminding you of his forgiveness and his love for you for all eternity. You're gonna see him and he's gonna see you and you're gonna be like him. You're gonna be like him forever. You're gonna be with him forever. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. If I just share with you, Grace and I are finishing a book on spiritual warfare, it's due this weekend. There's one part that my mind is struggling to envision. I wanna share it with you. I've been studying the Bible for almost 30 years. I've been teaching the Bible for more than 20 years. I'm still learning things and God is bigger than I thought and the future is more amazing than I anticipated and I'm more excited than I used to be. And what it says is that we were made, Psalm 8, you were made in your physical body a little lower than the angels. So there's God and there's angels and there's us. Upon the resurrection of the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that you will judge the angels. That in your glorified, resurrected, perfected, following in the first fruits, body, 
patterned after the resurrection of Jesus, you are going to get promoted in the cosmos by the king. You will be judging demons who have rebelled against God, that you will be with Jesus, that you will be like Jesus. This is where the Bible says, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, that, that no eye has beheld what God has in store for you. Furthermore, in Revelation 2, it says that not only did Jesus rise, he ascended, he is seated on a throne ruling over the nations. It says in Revelation 2 that Jesus also has a throne for you to sit under him and that, quote, you will rule nations. Everything that Jesus experienced, you will experience with Jesus. The resurrection, the glorification, the perfection, the removal of all fear, the restoration of all relationships, the return of perfect joy, living in the presence of God, seated on a throne, ruling under your King Jesus, ruling nations in a new creation, ruling over angels and spirit beings for all eternity. Man, I love you so much. I, I can't wait to see who you're gonna be. I can't wait to see what God has for you. I can't wait to see you unveiled in all your glory and with Jesus unveiled in all of his glory. I want you to live in light of your future, not your past. I want you to be the first fruits given to God, the first and best of your time and your talent and your treasure. I want you to live in light of who you will be when Jesus is done with you, not who you used to be when Jesus started with you. This is awesome. This is everything. And friends, Jesus is coming back and that's gonna take care of everything. And who you are has not yet even been unveiled. Who you will be when he's done with you has not yet even been considered. Some of you ask, Pastor Mark, what does this look like? My mind is not big enough to conceive, but one day my eyes will see you and you will see Jesus and we will see each other as he created us to be and saved us to be, amen? In the middle, we throw parties called church. Father God, thanks so much that Jesus is alive. He conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered Satan. He endured the wrath of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Father, that joy was your glory and us being glorified to glorify the one that glorifies you. God, we pray against sickness. We pray against evil. We pray against discouragement. We pray against fear. We pray against the things that would obscure our sight of the resurrected, returning and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. We declare this place to be a first fruits place where your people come together to worship this Jesus who is alive and well until one day, Lord Jesus, you return and we see you standing on the earth in all your glory. We hear you calling our name. We see ourselves coming forth in glory to see you, to be with you, 
to be like you, to enjoy you, to rejoice in you, to celebrate you forever and ever with the angels. We ask for the grace in your good name. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.